Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Rockefeller Center on Newsstand Studios in the heart of Manhattan. Joined as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Your week's been okay so far? Yeah. Yeah? Nice. Good. Uh, got uh, John here uh, with me. How you doing? Doing great, thanks. How's the customer service life? Is it just everything you'd always hoped? Super swell. Love yeah? It. Yep. Yeah? Get to run to Stanford later to go to offsite storage and get some parts to mail to people. Oh, snap. Indeed. It's going to be the best. Yep. Yeah. I have been, I will, quick side note on that, actually. I've been telling everyone who has an old school uh, spinzol lid, the one with the clear plastic bubble on the top, if you're having issues with that, reach out to me and we can get that fixed so that you don't rip the bearing out of the lid. No, nice. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. Working the boards here. We got Joe Hazen. How you doing? I'm doing great. You guys looking really smart today. You know why? Because you loaned me your fancy reading glasses because I forgot mine. That's why. Uh, and, of course, uh, working our international, intercontinental uh, engineering needs, we got Jackie Molecules. Hey, how's it going? Um, it's going well. I am excited, especially to have you. I'm always excited to have you, Jack. It, even when okay. you're just in LA and not in 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 Mexico. Oh, by the way, were you back I'm in for DC the, now? Oh, you're what the hell, dude? You you had to leave so that you couldn't like have fun during all the uh, LA Super Bowl parties. Yeah, I'm doing radio stuff with the Line Hotel, so uh, you sound excited yeah, to do it. I'm sure if they listen to this, they'll be psyched. I'm doing radio stuff. With the line yeah. Well, I was sad to miss the Super Bowl, but I love no, I love it here. Yeah, DC's the best. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, you know, sure. <laughs> uh, all right, but the reason I, I, I I'm excited, and I'm I'm hoping actually that you that you kind of punch in with questions, Jack, because today you have you are in a privileged position to ask specific questions that I might not think of, or that other people might not think of, because today on the on the program we have Francisco Magoya. Who is la- most late, latest, most late, latest project is Modernist Pizza, which came out. I don't know how long ago did that come out. A couple months ago. A couple months ago, yeah. and it's like a it's like a pamphlet on pizza. It's like a three page black and white Xeroxed pamphlet <laughs> on how to make. Oh no, it, I'm, no, it's like an eight thousand pound three volume with a kitchen set uh, thing that comes in a in a you know you know. A water jet cut metal powder coated box, but it's it's like a a giant pizza multi tomed pizza thing. Francisco, thanks. How you how you doing? I'm doing well, and you? Not doing well, doing well. So uh, we're gonna obviously have a, a lot of uh, technical questions, but Jack did the editing on your mm-hmm. Modernist Pizza podcast, right? Right, right. So, I, so first, you want to just pitch pitch the Pitch the, uh, the the question everyone wants to know: Why do I need three volumes that each one is like bigger than a presentation bible on uh, on on pizza? Well, I mean, there's a, a difference between need and want, right? I think that the uh, the biggest uh, pitch here would be that it's you know when we were doing research for this book and we were searching for pizza books, uh, first there's not a ton of them. Uh, most of them are geared for making pizza at home, which is fine. Uh, but when we're doing research, we're trying to find also books that are, you know, for professionals, for people who make pizza at home and, pizzer- I mean, sorry, in restaurants, pizzerias, and so forth. And I, I think maybe there was one or two. Um, 
And mostly when you have a book on pizza, it's, it focuses on one style. So either thin crust or, uh, you know, New York style or Neapolitan and so forth. So um, essentially this book, the intent of this book is to be uh, all encompassing. So every actual style of pizza that exists, um, any environment it can be baked or cooked in, um, all of those uh, uh, aspects were taken into consideration. And yes, it was, you know, four years of research of, of doing, you know, a lot of travel, a lot of, you know, R&D, a lot of experimentation to get to the results that, you know, those of us who are from, or those of you who are familiar with our books may know, which is uh, basically a deep dive into the world of pizza and the most popular food in the world. I think um, you'll find pizza pretty much anywhere you go. Uh, I, I believe you, you can't say, really say that about many foods in the book. I believe you say arguably the most popular because then obviously it's an argument. You don't have to prove it. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> um, you, I mean, you have to, maybe not everybody believes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that there's, there's two countries uh, and I forget where they are, but there's only two countries where there's like no trace of pizza. Well, where's that? Uh, you, know, so, you forget where they are, but like, like uh, don't go there. Yeah. Like, I mean, everywhere I've right, been, there's no. some pizza. It might be horrific. You might be, you might. Uh-huh. I had a, uh, I had a sweet durian pizza in Shenzhen once. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. But it was <laughs> oh, like, boy. it was like cafeteria style <laughs> crust. You know what I'm saying? Like, like uh, somehow like super doughy and yet also undercooked. Like they left it in for a long time, but still somehow it was gummy. You know what I'm talking about? And. Uh, Plus the durian. That's like the bonus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the durian on top. And I was like, oh, durian pizza. But it was like sweet, like sweet, sweet. And I was like, this is not like I could have imagined a world uh, like I've had alternative pizzas. Like I love the <clears throat> I, I don't know what you think about it, but I love the pizza that comes with the Bonito flakes waving in the breeze from the heat of the pizza cooling off. Like I like that. You know what I mean? Like I'm uh -huh. open. I'm open to things. Uh -huh. But the durian pizza, I was uh -huh. just like, man. Plus, did you guys do pizza? I don't remember. Uh, it, I, I read the I read the book a, a while ago. Did you do pizza in China or no? No, no, we did not visit uh, nor do a like on the ground research in China. Okay, uh, but it's uh, from what I hear, it's in in areas that's a little bit of a sort of like a fancy event. It's not as casual as it is here in the United States. Like it's a, it's a an event to go and have pizza. Well, I have had takeout pizza also in China. And I wanted to get your mm -hmm. take on they, you know, the, you know, the like the gloves that they pass out at a crab boil in Maryland. Sure. Yeah. So in China with the takeout pizza, at least when I've had it again in Shenzhen, it, the, the, you were expected to put on rubber, like not rubber, the, those plastic ill-fitting plastic, like polyethylene sure. mm -hmm. LDPE gloves to eat the right. pizza. And I wondered whether you'd ever encountered that and whether you also believe it's an abomination to eat pizza that way. <laughs> I can't, I mean, I think the only purpose I could see for that is to just not get your hands messy, but it is, there's other ways of accomplishing that <laughs> that are not using those gloves. But uh, yeah. I have not encountered that, no. What are your thoughts on, uh, on former uh, mayor, uh, former uh, mayor de Blasio, who theoretically of Italian extraction, first day in office, eats pizza with a, with a knife and New York style pizza with a knife and fork. What are your thoughts on this? Oh boy, I mean, I think that you know those are. It's not something you need to do. 
Um, but I would say that, you know, there are parts like in Naples where pizza comes from. Well, people eat yeah. pizza with the fork and a knife. No, well, that's where it comes from. And that's, you know, that, that is where people will eat it with the fork and a knife. I mean, you can choose not to. Yeah, but That's because, um, and, and can we start this now? Neapolitan pizza is not, you can't, it, 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 it gets limp in the tip. They're like you can't get around it. No matter how hard you fold sure. it, the sucker's going to get limp in the tip. I am not. I appreciate a great, you know, DOP pie, but I'm mm-hmm. going to say it's not the be all and end all of pizza. I mean, I know you obviously you wrote a million pages no, no. on it, but it's like, right? If if I had to press a button and eradicate one of the famous styles of pizza, or I should say, if I had to, could save only one, it wouldn't be that one. Right. No, and I think that in the book, we don't necessarily say that, you know, this is the best pizza in the world. I think, I don't think we really say that about anything. In fact, I, because there isn't such a thing as the best pizza, right? When people ask me, what is the best pizza? It's the one you like. Well, except um, for, except for you, you say that people who like their own pizza, and this is, I feel like the first 150 pages of the first book is paving the way for you crapping on New Haven pizza. That, like, honestly, like, as a guy that lived in New Haven for, you know, years, like, Mm-hmm. I feel like the first maybe 150 pages, you literally say, you have a, there's a section of the book, and people. You're exaggerating a oh, bit. Oh, there's a section of the book. You are exaggerating. Called, there's a section of the book called, uh, what about the pizza I grew up with? And in this section right, of the which book. Is what you're, 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 you're validating that argument. No, no, no. Please go no, no listen, listen. You liken enjoying the pizza that you, from where you come, right? To the Stockholm Syndrome. Mm -hmm. You literally say, and Uh and, and I was like, he's talking about New Haven people. I was like, he's talking about New Haven. And to some extent, New Yorkers. Because New York pizza was, let's be honest, with a few exceptions, like straight garbage in the 80s. You know what I mean? Like, like, it was Mm -hmm. like, it was not, I mean, there were like the, the, the classic places were here, but it's like, you know, whatever. But it all goes down to your, your. Paving the way for crapping on Sally's and Peppy's. So, so go ahead and let's get it out there. I like a burnt crust, and I don't feel like I'm in Stockholm syndrome like area. Like, just have it out with me. You guys flew around no, the I world. Mean, I, th- I think yeah. one of the things that that is going to be complicated about this conversation we're going to have right now is that let's pretend I'm, let's pretend you're a Republican, and I'm trying to convince you to be a Democrat. It's just not going to happen. But I'm going to tell you how we came to this conclusion. And maybe you can hear me or maybe not. It's, it's really up to you. Um, <laughs> I think that what matters most is that if I eat something that is burnt as a chef, whatever it may be, whether it's pizza or a piece of fish or a piece of bread, if it's burnt, if it's burnt, we call it what it is, burnt. But if you enjoy the taste of burnt, then that is fine. We, pref- we prefer to not have a burnt pizza. Now, there's dark, there's char. If you have a Neapolitan pizza, it has a little flex on it. Uh, you go to some pizzerias like Raza, you have these bubbles that, you know, got a little bit darker, which is, you know, it's completely delicious. But when you see this blackness in the crust, I don't particularly like it. I also don't love when the crust is unseasoned. I think the dough should have salt in it. I think that it's a... If somebody acquires a taste for a dough that is made with very little to no salt, again, that's fine. But it's always preferable to have about 2% salt in the dough. Um, Well, we can agree with you, and we can all agree that Tuscan bread is the worst bread in the world. But go ahead. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, but the, you know, there's a similar, there's a, there's that spirit to most of the pizza doughs that are made in New Haven, which is that they don't have salt. Now, you're also going to have every top ten list of pizzas. There's like a pizzeria in New Haven has everybody in this that writes these articles actually go to New Haven, or is it easier to just say, oh, New Haven is great? And to have a difference of opinion, it's like, oh, what the hell are you talking about? How could you have a different opinion from mine? But our opinion is not just like, we like, we don't like. It's more about, okay, we compared this, we tasted this. It's just, it's a, it's a pizza that is not what it's hyped up to be, in our opinion, in a, from like a culinary standpoint, it has, it misses a, a, a few targets. But if it's what you grew up with and that's what you enjoyed, I mean, who are we to tell you to not eat it? I mean, there's, there's other pizzas that are better seasoned, that are less burnt, that could be tastier. And, uh, and you didn't like Sally's either, right? You didn't like Sally's or Pepe's. Well, I mean, I think that they're, they could be vastly improved. I mean, there was an interesting uh, occasion where, you know, they brought a pizza to us. It would look perfectly fine. And then they're like, no, 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 put it back in the oven, get it darker. And we're like, no, it could, it would have been perfect at that point. Um, but you know, I think that, you know, we can talk about New Haven and, and how, you know, how much we dislike the pizza, if you like, but, you know, maybe there's, there's other things we'd like to, to yeah. discuss when it comes to pizza, but it's, it's not our <laughs> number one pizza. I think it's, uh, uh, I don't think we spent 150 pages on it, but we no, did no, no, spend no, no, a good no, amount what, what, of, of, of time there. Again, the first thing I did was turn to, I got to be honest, and a lot of people, the first thing I did was I turned to this section on New Haven and then went and read the whole book with what you said about New Haven in my mind the whole time. That's what it was. And by the way, mm-hmm. I don't think they're the be and all and end all of pizza either. I agree with you in a lot of ways that um, like one of the interesting things about certain American things, like American mm-hmm. styles of things like hamburgers, pizzas, certain extent, certain hot dog things, like a lot of the old school people make a point of not tasting other people's products and so it's very hard for them to right. grow and to, to, mm-hmm. to, to get better so i you know I, I agree i'm just giving you a little bit of a i'm giving you a little bit of a hard time for the old town's sake all right come on man it's all right so uh but, <laughs> no, you know I, there, yeah. it's a bit of a, a sore subject here because everybody does have an opinion on pizza right yeah. and it, it people there's like a very strong it's like people on their sports teams right i mean i don't know if you you find this but it's people will defend the one style they like to the death, figuratively speaking, but there there are very strong emotions associated with preferences of pizza so, or dislikes too. So what about? Uh, I was interested because there are certain styles of the pizza that I've never had, even though they're only a couple hundred miles away from me. Like, what's with this Old Forge? I've never even heard of Old Forge pizza before I picked up your book. I'm surprised because there's a sign at the entrance of Old Forge that says "Best Pizza City in the World," <laughs> so it must be. <laughs> And how could you not have been there? <laughs> um, Old Forge is, you know, it is baked on a, sh- like a, you know, typically baked on a full-size sheet pan, aluminum. Um, you know, the dough is, is kind of like white sandwich bread dough. So it's like soft, a little bit sweet. Um, it, then uh, most places will like put the sauce down on top of the dough directly, then like chopped onions, and then the cheese. And then it's baked kind of pale. Like there's very little browning. 
So um, that is, and there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of pizzerias down uh, the street. Like, I mean, I guess if it's by quantity of pizzerias, maybe it might be the, you know, the per capita <laughs> uh, pizza capital of the world, but it's a slightly, you know, like what you would get in a, like a cafeteria, right? Wow. I mean, these are, and, and some people will love it and be fans of it. And it's uh it's a style. It's, it's definitely a, a type of pizza that uh, numerous pizza people in Old Forge really have a liking. Huh. And so, and the aluminum pans are shiny. Is that one of the reasons why there's no crust development? Dark, it's not dark at all. It's like they use shiny aluminum yeah, pans. Yeah, no, it's one of your, your regular kitchen uh, sheet pans, aluminum. So huh. it'll also bend and warp as, as it's baking. So you don't get like that nice uh, crispy bottom underneath the pizza. So sounds delightful. It's, uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, if you had to say what style of pizza, let's assume it's not its own style. Pizza Hut uh-huh. is, what is it? I think, uh, Pizza Hut would call New York style a distant cousin, a relative that they, uh, don't see anymore, <laughs> but they might have a, uh, maybe some DNA uh, in common. Huh. So maybe maybe that. But Pizza Hut used to be good. I don't know how old you are. but 50. I know that there was a point where it, I don't know if you recall, or maybe it is that childhood pizza syndrome that, yeah. you know, it was enough cheese, enough, you know, uh, you know, big enough it was good enough. But I, I, I seem to recall as a kid that it wasn't as terrible. We, I grew up in Mexico City, uh, and we had Pizza Hut. And it was like a special thing to go on your birthday to Pizza Hut. And maybe I have those sorts of associations with it, but it's, it's definitely a very different uh, animal at this point. I mean, I believe Pizza Hut, like one of the things they do is grease the hell out of their pan so that it, it like mm-hmm. almost the bottom gets kind of fried. And, uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they need to do that because they viciously overtop their pizzas. What, do you, what are your thoughts on viciously overtopped pizzas? Uh, you know, I know some people like them, but I think that the problem you have with that is that sometimes it steams whatever's underneath it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really, uh, you know, whatever you're having, including the dough, could get stay like gummy. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you've had like Chicago uh, stuffed crust. Um, no, it, I've had regular know, Chicago uh, deep dish, but I've never had this. No, I've never had the stuffed guy. The stuffed crust is almost, it's, uh, you wonder why they put the, you know, the, the second layer of dough there because it almost, it's, it stays, it doesn't, it never really cooks. And so it almost feels like it's more cheese, but it's really raw dough. Um, <laughs> Again, sounds delightful. And so those are the things that happen. Yeah, right. I mean, we did encounter a few horrors on this trip. I had a banana topped pizza in Buenos Aires and I only had it because I, how could I not? I mean, it's on the menu. We have to. We have to see what this this banana pizza is, and it's as awful as you might imagine. But there were there were a few of those things that we encountered uh, throughout the research. Well, so is that part of your Brazilian thin crust pizza, which I know nothing about? I'd like you to tell me a little. I've never been to Brazil, so like, what's that? What's that all about? Uh, so yeah, we went. We were on the fence on whether we should go to South America, um, but when we started to see like the you know the 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 visual aspects of, you know, the characteristics of these different pizzas, we thought, you know, it's, they look like they're actual styles that we need to see, document, learn about, and 
also figure out if, if they should get a recipe in the book. And uh, uh, Sao Paulo alone has 2,000 pizzerias. I mean, that's, uh, uh, it's a large city, yes, but still 2,000 of anything uh, is, is pretty remarkable. Uh, it is thin crust. Um, it is a, it has, you know, you can have like your average normal, like tomato sauce, cheese topped uh, pizza, but um, as happens in many places, you have uh, sort of like an adaptation of toppings that, uh, you know, depending on what's available, people will put on pizza. So some of the things that we saw uh, very frequently is like just canned tuna fish. Uh, we had, uh, you know, hard boiled eggs. There was uh, hearts of palm. Uh, shrimp is a huge one. Um, like together on the same pizza. Like all, all of that um, together? All of that? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But then you also like another common one was like our pepperoni. They call it calabresa and it's like a, it's a similar sausage. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a sausage that is, is popular in, in Brazil that they also put on a pizza and it's wonderful, but it's thin crust. It has its own rituals too. I mean, I think that that is another important, important cultural aspect of pizza is that wherever you go, it has like different cultural, uh, you know, aspects that are important to, to, to talk about. Like it's a, people only have pizza for dinner in Sao Paulo. Um, there are a few places that open for lunch, but it's almost out of the question to, to, to have it for lunch. But here's a, you know, to the point of eating pizza with a fork and knife, that's how it's eaten in Brazil. Um, if, uh, the newer pizzerias actually encourage people to use their hands to eat pizza, but People eat it with fork and knife, and it's like table side. It's like a little fancier. So people like go have pizza, and the waiter brings you your pizza to your table and puts it on a tray on the side, and will serve you slices as you're eating them. It's a little bit more. Uh, there's a little bit more of a ritual around it that is is more of a special event. Uh, but if you go to Buenos Aires, it's completely different, and it's a completely different pizza. It's I would say that that one might be the most similar to Pizza Hut because it's baked in a pan that is oiled. Um, it's a thick crust. And the amount of cheese they put on this pizza is insane. I mean, you cut a slice of a hot pizza, and there's so much cheese that it, it just completely wraps the slice Ooh. when it melts, and it just pours down and covers on top of it. But it's the sort of pizza you have one of, one slice, and you're kind of done. Yeah, I, don't like, um, the, I like a pizza that you could have two, two and a half... Slice. That's a more of a like. I prefer sure. that. Yeah. You know what I do. Yeah. You know what and, I do all the time. Since yeah. since I turned forty, what? I always put mm -hmm. salad on my pizza, no matter what it is. I always order a salad, throw the salad on the pizza, you it, shove it in my Does face. It feel healthier. I don't know. I just Does like it feel the healthier to you. No, no. I I don't believe in health. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Something about I just like having the green, crunchy. I, I guess mm -hmm. it started. Nastasia and I. Used to, when we went to Roberta's all the time, we would want to throw fresh arugula on our pizza and they would never give it to us. So we started just bringing it with us. Imagine going into a restaurant <laughs> with your own arugula. With your own arugula. And throwing it on the restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because they would, because you know why we did it? Because they had it in the restaurant, but wouldn't let us buy it. Isn't that mm -hmm. messed up? Anyway. <clears throat> so like, uh, yeah, we used to do that. So that, that's what I do. I'm, I'm a horror show. I also use an unconscionable amount of uh, crushed red pepper, but that's en en enough of me. So how did this work in the book? Did you guys do 
the trip in the middle of writing it? I mean, you could tell me. Like, like the way you started is you start, mm-hmm. like, here's the styles and then here's the research. But you had to have done a lot of preliminary mm-hmm. research before you did the trip, no? Yeah, we started in the project towards the tail end of our bread book, which came out in 2017. So there was a period of time where uh, the kitchen staff, including myself, were done with all of the material we had to turn in for the book. And so between that happening and, you know, starting the new, you know, uh, publishing the hard, you know, print of, uh, of Marinus Bread, uh, we got working on, on the pizza book. So there was a good about year or so of uh, R&D and experimentation that occurred before we started going on trips. Uh, because the more we read, we also, there were things that we learned about pizza that we didn't know, like, you know, the fact that there is uh, distinct styles of pizza in South America or how fanatical people can be about Neapolitan pizza in Tokyo, for example. Uh, you know, all of these things that you start to learn as you start to dig deeper and deeper. So, uh, so the trips occurred, uh, I would say most, the bulk of the trips were in 2018. So on year two of, of the project. Um, and those really helped either clarify the vision or fine tune uh, recipes or completely eradicate recipes and, and basically rewrite them because the idea was to basically learn to go to different different pizzerias and pizzaiolas that were willing to talk to us and show us how they did their pizza. Um, there were, there was some, a lot of, of learning that came from that, including that there's no one standard way of making like, you know, in, in Naples, there's like the VPN, right. But nobody really follows it. I mean, there's no, it, nobody follows it to the T, uh, but you sort of have to, to get the certification, but everybody does it slightly differently or vastly differently. Uh, there's many, you know, changes that people do and adapt their, their recipes to, um, which we also mentioned in the book. And, you know, because there were different ways of making Neapolitan pizza, in the U.S. you have like the long 48-hour, 24-hour cold proof. In Naples, it's overnight at most. Um, and then there's a VPN version. So we have three very different uh, Neapolitan-style recipes. They're all like for a different purpose and a, and a different use. But... Um, those were the things that, that we learned as we went and we just started to like insert them into the book, um, as we saw. So as a breadhead and a pizza head, Mm -hmm. do you think that the cult of hyper long fermentations is gone like overboard in this country? Like that it's like, it's almost like, remember like the cult of espresso where the espresso all of a sudden now is like only like 10 milliliters out of the, out of the puck. It's like, do you think that it's gone beyond like what you would need because like for me i know i have a problem i do a lot of whole wheat stuff so like if i let my stuff go that long mm-hmm. it gets slack because i have too much i have too many enzymes mm-hmm. in my dough so everything gets slack mm-hmm. if i let it go that long what do you think mm-hmm. i agree i think that there is a sort of like a sweet spot for cold proofing uh which is between 24 and 48 hours but we did have a lot of uh you know Pizzaiolas that are doing like 72, 72 hours. Uh, you know, one guy that's doing Roman pizza, like he even advertises it on his menu, a 96-hour cold proof. Um, it's not, it, it, I don't know that it makes things better. Uh, I don't know that cold proofing is all that important, really, if, if you're fermenting your dough properly. I think that it, I mean, it slows things down. 
you have, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, whatever activity would happen at room temperature happens in refrigeration too, just a lot slower. Um, it does make the dough easier to handle. I mean, there's, there are some pros to cold proofing your dough, but I would cut it off at 48 hours. I would say that after 48 hours, you're really not going to be seeing very much uh, improvement on your dough. Um, but if you, if you do, like our master Neapolitan pizza dough is a 24-hour bulk fermentation at room temperature. It, it never touches the refrigerator. So, um, how hard it, is that to titrate, though? How, like, how, how hard is it to get your yeast dosing exactly right to hit 24 hours at room temperature? Yeah, I, I mean, there's, we had the president of what we learned from our bread book, which was, uh, you know, multiple experiments on, on percentages of yeast. You more or less, when you make a lot of dough, there's a point where you know what, you know, understanding a recipe by baker's percentage, that you understand what uh, percentage, how long it's going to take to ferment uh, from 0.1, the difference between 0.2, 0.3, 0.5, how long, how much time you have, it kind of becomes this, uh, I guess, second nature understanding of, of how much yeast is enough. Uh, but also because, for example, if you think of a pre-ferment like pouliche, if it's a, if it's a pre-ferment that you're going to do, you know, 18, 24 hours ahead of time, use a minuscule amount of yeast. So then we thought, what if we just do this for the dough? And we didn't have to do a lot of tries to realize that that was just the right amount. Um, so you, you rely a lot on like background work that you did beforehand to get to these numbers. And as a, as a chef, as a cook, your go-to is what, SAF Red? I know you give exhaustive ways to like go back and forth between the different yeasts, but I mean, is there a reason mm-hmm. for the average person, even professional, to use anything for pizza other than SAF Red? SAF Red is good because it's it's instant, and I think that you know SAF is the brand. And you know, for those of who don't know, if they if they find other brands of instant yeast, they'll work fine. But that's the important distinction to use instant versus active, uh, mostly because instant has more live yeast cells per gram than active does because the process of producing active yeast is a little harsher on the on the yeast cells. So there's more dead yeast cells, which is why you have to use like hot water to kind of like wake it up uh, and break through all the dead yeast cells to get to the living yeast cells. And so that alters your dough temperature. So it's kind of a mess to use active. So don't use active if, if you can avoid it. Fresh is fine. Uh, for those who do not know, it's a it's basically it's yeast that is in a uh, in a in a moist form in a in a uh, uh, like a cake, if you will. It's, it looks like about a pound of butter, has a, a similar look, uh, but it's already hydrated. Uh, the problem you have with with fresh yeast is that not every maker will put its pro, its expiration date. And you only really have like two or three weeks to work with it uh, before it, it starts to, to decline. Um, so if you have a lot of production and you do a lot, sure, go ahead and use uh, fresh, you know, cake yeast. But if you're doing it every now and then, or if you're not sure about the, the shelf life of your yeast, just just use instant yeast. It's, e- even really, even in professional uh, environment, though, even in a professional environment, I mean, I don't really. I mean, have you you've done the test? So you tell me any flavor mm-hmm. advantage to fresh? I don't think so. No, and that's, but people will die on their sword on it, right? And so that's why we we wanted to make sure, okay, if we're going to say it's instant, then we we need to back it up. And so we did numerous tests on, you know, flavor is very subjective. So that was the last thing we taste, we tested. Uh, we wanted to see if it had an effect on the rheology of the dough, meaning how the dough 
the integrity of the dough. Um, so we would make a bunch of different percentages of yeast with both instant and fresh with different flours, different hydration proportions. And then we put it through uh, a machine that's called an extensograph, which is a machine that is going to basically you put a strip of dough on, on the machine and it's got, it's like a robotic finger that goes up and down. And so it basically pulls the, the strip of dough up. And once it snaps, uh, what it's going to tell you is how extensible the dough is, you know, basically how much can I stretch this dough? before applying X amount of weight uh, uh, to it will make it basically rip. Um, and so we didn't see a lot of differences to, to, that would be remarkable that would say, you know, use this yeast instead of that yeast. Um, and the flavor part, I mean, that is different from each person. You really would have to bake the pizza on its own without any sauce or cheese to be able to really tell the difference if there was a, a taste, uh, you know, difference because um, that's just the nature of pizza. It, it's bread with other stuff on it. But in our uh, triangle tests, uh, the triangle tests are tests that you do to get people's unbiased uh, opinion on what uh, they perceive from what they're tasting, whether there's a difference between one thing or the other or no difference at all. Uh, so we were, were not able to detect, people were not able to detect um, strong differences between pizzas made with one type of yeast versus another yeast. So, you know, there's, there is something to be said. If you've always used fresh yeast and it's always worked for you, then great. You don't need to switch. And if you've always used instant, don't feel bad that you're not using fresh. They're, they're both can be used interchangeably. If you use them in the right quantities, um, you know, you need a lot less of the instant because it's dry than you do of the fresh because it has water. So mm -hmm. you just need to know what the conversion is from one to the other. And speaking of it, if you like conversions <clears throat> or if you like tests of things, you got to check out the book because it's like it's all of that stuff. There's a there's a a page where you guys uh, review all the different flowers. And actually, surprisingly, I'm surprised one of your main recommendations for a lot of styles is my standard kind of house brand, which is Heckers. You use a lot of Heckers. What mm -hmm. uh, what what dra what draws you to them? Uh, so I started to use Heckers. Um, you know, one of the the. Uh, the people that we learned uh, a lot from is Tony Gimignani in San Francisco. Um, and I took a few classes with him and worked at his pizzeria um, to basically learn, you know, how he makes pizza. Um, and uh, that's one of the ones that he uses for uh, a, a specific style of pizza. He likes the strength that's in it. It's a really, it's a, a higher protein content flour. Uh, that has a particular strength, but it also stretches nicely, right? So because you can have flowers that are very strong that you're trying to extend, and it's just like a rubber band that pulls back, right? So uh, an ideal flower is going to have a dough that's going to produce a, a strong dough, but it also can yield to pressure without ripping and tearing the dough. So um, you may or may not know this, but Heckers has another name. It's also called Sarasota. Um, it's not spelled like Florida. Name. It's, not spelled like Florida. Spelled with a C. No. Yeah. yeah. Correct. And it's the same flower. So if somebody can't find find Heckers for some reason, Sarasota is the one to one. It's made by the same company. They just have two different names. Yeah, why do they do flower. that? It's like Hellman's mayonnaise and best made. It's the same mayonnaise. What the heck? It's so dumb. Why? Do I don't that? know. Yeah. I don't know. I have no idea. 
Right, it's so, a great question. Though, so for my crew, because I'm going to have to ask the questions in from the Patreon in a minute before we run out of time. But for my crew, things like mm-hmm. uh, they're going to they're going to love things like uh, vacuum vacuum draining of the mozzarella. You want to describe things like that that yes. my my crew might particularly enjoy? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we were thinking is like when you buy fresh mozzarella, it comes in you know this ball form. It it's about I think 100 grams ball on average. Uh, but every pizzeria that I know that utilizes that type of mozzarella, what they do is they have to basically cut it. There's different ways of cutting it. And then they have to drain it, whether it's overnight, you know, in a, uh, like a, some sort of straining environment or, you know, cheesecloth, what have you, because there's too much moisture in it. Um, and so, you know, I, I keep wondering why doesn't somebody already sell this cheese already pre-cut and pre-drained so I can just use it. Um, and the, the thing is, like, you can do your own uh, if you want to. There's different ways of doing it. But you can also, uh, you know, one of the ways to do it is to put, like, the fresh mozzarella, cut it in the shape that you want to cut it. Uh, you know what works great for cutting fresh mozzarella easily is a French fry cutter. Really? Uh, it cuts them into perfect. Yeah, it cuts it into um, basically um, even size pieces of cheese you don't have to uh, you, freeze you, it no no it cuts the what i like to do is like i'll put two inside the the french fry cutter so that the one behind pushes the one in front and so forth um but you get these evenly cut pieces of cheese that what we like of that is that it'll melt they'll melt at a similar rate right? which which you cutter like, are you using which uh which which size cutter I'll have to get back to you, but it's the biggest one you can find. And and we found it. Can I say where? Sure. Because it, it's, yeah, it's called the Webstaurant store. Oh, yeah, yeah. But they, those um, guys are evil. But yeah, sure. That They, they have everything. They're not that, it's not that they're evil. It's not that they're, I'm sorry. I, maybe I have nothing against them other than they've swallowed up a lot of business. You know what I'm saying? Sure. I mean, sure. The, 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 the Bowery is you, a shadow of its former self. Yeah, well, if, I was going to say you might find find it in the Bowery. I mean, I don't know how far people uh, live that live in your, uh, you know, or listen to your show, but um, the Bowery would you can certainly find it there. But it's a very restaurant specific piece of equipment that, um, you know, it, it's it's got these like feet that are like suckers so that it can really hold on to the table. Um, but that's the one we use, and it cuts them to the same size. But anyway, so... So you're using like a half-inch probably, quickly, right? A 13-millimeter cutter? I think, I think that's the biggest one you can find. Yeah. Yes. Well, so they, they do, I, a, wedge, they do a wedge cut, but I, you're not using the wedge cut, right? You're using a square cut. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Square cut. So it's probably 13 mil- um, probably There's 13 also an attachment. Millimeter. There's an attachment for a Roboku that you, you can also do it, but a Roboku is really expensive, so maybe not everybody has it. A French fry cutter... You know, it's it's something that it's it was less than a hundred bucks. I mean, have you had luck with the um, Roboku because it mutilates cheese when you're putting it into it? You know what I mean? It's oh, I don't love it. Mutil- yeah, I, yeah. I don't love it. I like to. I prefer to use the French fry cutter for for cutting uh, even shapes because you can hand tear too. But they also, when you hand tear, it's a pretty nice look. But the hand tear, there you have different pieces, different sizes. They're gonna melt. At uh, different rates, even if we're talking about 60 seconds or even more, like cause you can use fresh mozzarella on any pizza you want. Uh, but uh, if you have like very small pieces, very large pieces, they're going to melt at different times. And also, therefore, brown at different times if it's like a longer, longer bake. Um, but putting the, you know, the cut mozzarella inside a cryovac bag with uh, a clean paper towel 
uh, you pull a vacuum, you have an instant strain. Because sometimes you can forget, right? I mean, it can happen. You, you have to plan ahead. Um, and that's when we saw that. We was like, well, people could just buy it like this. Why, why, why not be able to provide uh, this sort of service if, if you're selling uh, fresh mozzarella, especially if you need to, you know, you, maybe you don't have enough people working in your kitchen. Maybe you're short staff. Maybe you don't have a bunch of time. It certainly is a convenient product that, that could be sold. Right. Like I know some of my friends, they, they sell like an intermediate cheese. Like it's like halfway between a mozzarella and a scamorza, but it's not right. the same thing as cutting it and draining it. You know what I mean? It's not the same product. Right. Right. It melts differently. It has slightly different tastes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one more question from me before I get to the I'm going to get my head stabbed by John here for not getting to the proper questions. But <laughs> this is going into bread, into, back into bre- bread head again, but as part of pizza. So mm-hmm. you know how <clears throat> we all talk about uh, hydration, right? But mm-hmm. the hydration, we always talk about it on the, on the dough side before it's cooked, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. you know, you and I both know that, you know, protein is a factor, damaged starch is a mm-hmm. factor, uh, whether there's bran, mm-hmm. other inclusions that have, uh, that hold on to water is a factor, right? And almost mm-hmm. all of the research that I've read focuses on the, the, what the water does to the dough when it's still a dough, including up to like the mm-hmm. size of the bubbles uh, as it's raising, et cetera, et cetera. And you've done amazing work in mm-hmm. modernist bread and here showing the effect of hydration on cooked on the cooked dough structure. But what does the mm-hmm. hy- let's say that you could have uh, two different flowers and you could get them rheologically identical. But again, rheology for those mm-hmm. who, you know, is the is the is the, the kind of texture and pulling and snapping of the dough. You mm-hmm. could get them identical at different hydrations. What effect would that have on the cooked product? I think that the most one of the, the, the things that you're looking at on a, on a cooked dough is that uh, water is going to affect how long the dough is going to take to bake as well. Uh, because there's something that occurs inside a dough while it's cooking that is extremely interesting. It's called a heat pipe effect, which is that once you put your dough inside the oven, uh, what's going to be happening is on the surface, the surface is what gets hot first. Right, because it's in closest contact to, to its hot environment. Um, and so what occurs is the water that is on the surface, the little droplets, uh, they're basically going to get hot enough that they're going to turn into steam. And then that steam has to go somewhere. Uh, the heat pipe effect is a property of steam that what it likes to do is it likes to find a cooler spot. So once that dough starts to get hot on the surface, the steam is not escaping what it's doing is it's going, it's digging deeper and deeper into the dough. Um, so basically, when you look at the dough, at a dough next time, at a baked loaf of bread, you'll see, you know, the crunch structure. There isn't a single bubble that will be intact. There is, they're all basically inflating with steam. They pop, and then they go to the bubble directly below them or in closest contact to them. And then the same thing happens again. It expands, and then it pops, and it goes down again. So steam is finding the coldest spot, and it's always going to be at the core of the dough. So once the temperature at the core of the dough starts to sort of equalize to what the temperature of the steam is, then the steam is going to start to escape from the surface. So the more water that you have inside your dough, the longer this process is going to take. Uh, Additionally, more water is going to mean that the crust is going to take a longer time to set. Uh, So if you want a crispy loaf of bread, 
like, you know, a nice crusty sourdough, if it's very high in hydration, it's always worth venting, meaning either cracking your oven dough a little bit longer, or if you have like an actual bread oven, opening the vent for a little bit longer. So you can form a nice crust on the outside of, of your loaf of bread. So it's, it has to do with the duration of the bake and with uh, formation of crust as well. Yeah, that, that heat pipe thing was my favorite thing from Modernist Bread, I have to say. It's great, isn't it? It's, it's, I love explaining it because when people first, it's not intuitive, right? The first you think, oh, well, heat is, heat is escaping. Steam is coming out as it's baking. And it's actually, it wants to go to where it's coldest. And that's, it's a very interesting phenomenon that occurs. Well, and it answered for me a question that I'd had forever. Why does banana bread take so long to cook? Right? Why does banana mm-hmm. bread take so long? Right. Because it doesn't form that open structure on the inside. So that's why it takes an right. hour right. or more to cook a banana bread, even though it's cooking. You know what I mean? Because everyone's like, oh, it's because right. it's cooking at a low temperature. It's like, no, it cooks at a low temperature because otherwise it would burn in the length of time it takes to cook. Mm-hmm. It's, right. It, it, that's why. You know what I mean? And so I was like, uh, to right. me, like as soon as I read that, I was like, you know, it was like uh, I had to, I hit my head and I said I could have had a V8. I, uh, I love that. It was great stuff. <laughs> uh, so I have a question. And, but also, yep. you know. Go ahead. No, no. I was, uh, I, the other yeah. thing is banana bread is really dense. Banana bread is super dense. And so that, that it, it, it's very comparable to like a, a rye bread, right? These are breads that are very dense. They're going to take long periods of time to bake. Uh, a rye loaf of bread is, uh, you know, rye can absorb up to 16 times its weight in water. So that, these are why these breads, they take so much longer to bake, but also why they last so long. They, they don't uh, stale as quickly as other breads might because of the, the ability of water retention um, and the type of starch that you have in rye bread. So anyway, that was just a quick uh, aside on density. Well, the thing about part. rye, though, that's such a pain in the butt is that you have to wait so long after it comes out of the oven. It just takes so long sure. to set. I hate that. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. The, the, the other you can't is, speed it up. There's yeah, no way no. it's getting up. No, because, because it's so fragile that you can't even vacuum speed it. Like if you're using like a high-protein flour and you want to vacuum mm-hmm. it, you can vacuum it, and sure, you might, like, rupture right. some of the stuff on the inside, but you'll just destroy a rye bread by throwing it in a vacuum machine to cool it. You know what I mean? Like, just freaking ruin Correct. it. You can't speed cool it. Um, uh, one more question on this. Do you have a trick, and I, I don't remember because it's been a long time, so, like, one of the issues that mm-hmm. people, if they think about it, have with uh, very high hydration products, like whole wheat, like mm-hmm. rye, is that they mold mm-hmm. very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. so like they don't stale, but they also, they mold. So like, is there like mm-hmm. anything you have for that? Uh, you know, I think the why do things mold is because they're sitting out in an environment that, you know, mold finds, uh, friendly, right? So I would say that being preemptive is probably your best solution. So if you have uh, bread and it's been sitting out for, you know, an extended period of time, it's because you're not eating it fast enough. So why not freeze some of it? Um, I would cut the slices that I want, wrap them or putting in, you know, some sort of, you know, enclosed environment and freeze them. Uh, because once they're sliced, they're going to thaw a lot faster. Uh, and they'll also, if you're going to toast them, they'll toast faster. And you don't have to cut this like frozen piece of bread. Man. So I would say that that would be a way. Otherwise, you're looking at adding uh, certain ingredients to bread that uh, are like for reducing mold. Um, I don't know that I love adding that, yeah. those, uh, you know, like sodium benzoate, you know, yeah. like, I don't know if I want to add that to my, cause it'll kill the yeast too. Like there's all of these like 
side effects to utilizing those ingredients. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. And you can toast from frozen, too. All right, so listen, can you put on your chocolate hat for one minute? You bet. All right. Mm. Justin Sherrill writes in, uh, I've been buying deodorized cocoa butter for use in making chocolate mm-hmm. bars. Uh, most of mm-hmm. what I have received has had some plastic-ish smell to it, probably from storage mm-hmm. or maybe from the deodorizing process or, me, I guess, from not deodorizing mm-hmm. it enough. Uh, any time uh, I, uh, uh, I add more than a little bit of this cocoa butter to the chocolate, it takes on that same smell, mm-hmm. uh, especially right. in milk and white. I've tried several different suppliers mm-hmm. with hit or miss results. It's not a strong smell, but given it's one of the three main ingredients, it matters. Can I deodorize it further, mm-hmm. or is there some way to mask or overwhelm this? I think that initially what you should do is uh, probably get a different source of, of deodorized uh, cocoa, be- uh, cocoa butter. Uh, the two that I would recommend is uh, cocoa berry. You can, and it, it's very convenient because it comes in like these tiny like teardrop-sized pieces. Uh, so you don't have to like cut this huge chunk, you know, this huge block of cocoa butter. So it melts very easily. I've never had any problem with that uh, with cocoa berry uh, cocoa butter. Uh, and Malrona, you can also get cocoa butter from them. Um, so I mean, these are re- reputable sources. I have looked for, you know, deodorized cocoa butter for other purposes, uh, just like whatever brands to see what would be available. That is, is you know, for you know most people. They're typically not very good, and they're not 100% deodorized. But these other two brands, um, I would recommend. But can you stir like an adsorbent, like uh, bentonite, and let it settle out? Would that do anything in a, in, a, in an oil-based thing, or can you keep it hot for a while to flash off the volatiles? I mean, is there any other thing that you know that works? I don't know that it's. I mean, I would I would say that because it's, if it's a fat-soluble taste and aroma, it's going to be very hard to get rid of. Uh, like if you were to infuse vanilla into like butter, how do you get rid of a vanilla taste? Like completely. Yeah, you I think that you. the amount of time that it would take to do that. I mean, these these are oils that merge into each other and can't really separate them. Uh, so I would say, you know, use that cocoa butter for other purposes. Get a fresh bucket of of uh, cocoa berry or valrona, and you know, you won't have to worry about that problem anymore. And they come in like five kilo tubs or something. It's yeah. like a good amount. I wonder whether they uh, stored the cocoa butter he's getting in PVC because PVC, like, uh, you know, PVC wrapping, because you know how awful that stuff smells. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it could be. And any fat that it touches, like when you when someone takes a nice piece of cheese and wraps it in that stuff and then the whole freaking cheese smells like that. It makes me so angry. Right. Um, Yeah. uh, Okay. Uh, uh, Roger Chi. Uh, wants you to know that you are sorely missed in Poughkeepsie and your awesome Hudson chocolates are sorely missed. Uh, are there any plans for a modernist pastry? Uh, I can't say yet. Um, can't or won't? We are working on... Well, I, 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 one because of the other. I, I can't <laughs> and therefore I won't. Yeah. Um, because uh, we're working actually on a couple of different projects right now. And it will all eventually, you know, come to light. But, uh, uh, you know, that um, that's as much as I can say right now. Hmm. And then uh, um, we have a, from uh, Payne MJ also basically the same question. What's the next what, what like what's mm-hmm. next on your plate? Because as we know from reading your current book, you started that while you were still working on other ones. So we know you're already working on something. I mean, yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. 
you know, they assume that you will not reveal what you're what you're going to do, uh, and then link to that wants to know regardless what uh, we on the show think you should work on. I mean, look, obviously, I mean, pastry is a big gap. You haven't done cocktails right. yet. You haven't stepped into my into my little right. uh, corner of the universe yet. But uh, uh-huh. I don't know. Like what? What? Like aside from what you're working on, what are you interested in thinking about right now? I guess we'll put it that way. Yeah, I think an interesting, you know, when, when we finally reveal what this is, nobody's going to be surprised. I, I can say that. It will be like, oh, okay, cool. Um, but I think that, you know, there is a, an entire world out there of baked goods that uh, require our attention. Um, and it's something that has really interested me and therefore uh, those of us who work here. So I think that if we're, uh, working on anything in earnest, it's these uh, this particular world of baked goods. So. What do you think about the Panatone explosion uh, of the past two years? You know, I think it's great, mostly because uh, whenever you or a baker would make them, let's say six years ago, seven years ago, what the general audience had them to compare had to compare them to would be the junk that you get at the grocery store that's made, you know six, seven months ahead of time in some factory, maybe, maybe not in Italy. Um, and so they would say, like, why are you charging, you know, $20, $30 for these things? When I can buy it for $5 at my, you know, local, local deli or even my, like, stop and shop or whatever grocery store you go to. Um, and it also, like, made people, they dislike it so much that what they do is they'll toast it and dunk it in coffee. And, you know, like that's to me, it's just wrong. Um, so I'm glad that all of this Pentaton explosion is happening. I mean, I think we need to, you know, basically uh, the person to thank is Roy Schwartzapple in, in California. I mean, he's single-handedly uh, made this spread popular again, and he's made it popular to have not just for the holidays. It's a, it's a year round thing, right? It's like pie. Is, is pie supposed to only be had in, you know, Thanksgiving or can we just have pie year round? Yeah, don't get me started on pie. Like pie year round. Don't get me started on pie. You like pie? I, it's not that I like Are you pie. A pie fanatic? It's obs- obsessed. A fanatic doesn't even begin to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good obsession to have. <laughs> well, in fact, I was going to knock it into it, but like the one thing about the the old forge pizza is they refer to it as a cut. And my favorite pie guru, my pie guru to end all pie gurus also at time to time would refer to them as cuts, not as slices of pie. So, I'm all for uh, whatever. All right. Hmm. Starving, vi- starving violist writes in violist, violist, not vi- violist. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you, Francisco. I'm looking forward to hearing you on cooking issues. I'm a devoted uh, homes, a hobbyist cook, and I've invested uh, what some would say is an insane amount of time and energy uh, baking from modernist bread since it first came out. My question mm-hmm. is about hand mixing versus machine mixing. No matter mm-hmm. how thoroughly I mix mm-hmm. my bread by hand, the gluten development and resulting loaf volume never match the loaves that I make with a mixer. Even after adding additional mm-hmm. stretch and folds and every trick suggested in, mm-hmm. in your book, the hand-mixed loaves never seem to reach full gluten development. Am I missing something? Perhaps mm-hmm. a temperature factor. Modernist cuisine and other reliable bread books claim that hand-mixing is, if anything, superior, but my hands tell a different story. Please help. I mean, there's a few things without having seen the process from beginning to end that I could uh, make you know, some assumptions on. Uh, the first is... Uh, you know, make sure that you're using a strong bread flour. I mean, that's that's number one, right? Um, and the second would be that some things that could help is uh, 
mixing, if you're going to just do folds, I would say do your initial mix. First, try auto leaf. And by this, I mean just mixing water and flour. Uh, if you have a pre-ferment, you can throw that in there. Uh, let those ingredients, like just mix them till they look like a, almost like a paste. Uh, let them sit for half an hour, then add your salt and whatever other ingredients, and do a more thorough mix by hand. If you're just mixing in a bowl, uh, that could slow things down. But, you know, after you do that initial mix, put it on a wood table or a marble and then knead it on that. You're going to get a lot more bang for your buck there with, you know, physical exertion. Um, and so mix it there until it starts to get some body and some, some stretch and some elasticity. Uh, with the kneading motions that we show in the book. Um, and then something that could help develop your dough is that instead of doing your bulk fermentation uh, at room temperature, if you do it in a warmer environment, that helps to strengthen the dough. Uh, it also is good for fermentation. It's good for a bunch of other things. But if you can find a place to put your dough that's about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, this is going to have a really good effect on your bulk fermentation uh, on the dough as far as strengthening and flavor development and tenacity. Um, and, you know, in reality, if you're not doing, if you're doing all the folds and that's not enough, just keep going. I mean, really keep going with the folds. Uh, if it feels like the dough is getting too bubbly and gassy, then at this point, switch it into a cooler environment. So you can basically uh, determine the, 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 how the fermentation curve is going to go by how well you can control the temperature if let's say you don't have a, a place to keep it at 80 degrees Fahrenheit, well, maybe you fill a bag with warm water and the tub sits on top of that uh, for, you know, in between folds. Uh, maybe you have a, like a, you know, one of these like back warmers, right? Where people put them on, on their back to, you know, uh, if they have like sore muscles or whatnot, that could help. Um, you know, there's different ways of keeping warm temp environments that don't require like a ton of money. And if it's, you need to cool it down, just put an ice pack on top of it, you know, and before you give it a fold so that the coldness goes, disperses uh, inside of it, uh, or maybe the tub is sitting on an ice pack, um, you know, just cooling down. So you're basically slowing down or speeding up the yeast as you see fit. But I would say if it feels, if you've done six or seven folds and it's still not 100% there, just keep going uh, and control the temperature of your dough. So all of those factors should, I hope, uh, help from getting the, the right flour to the auto lease, to doing a, a, a more robust initial mix by hand, and then just doing uh, temperature control between folds uh, from start to finish until you reach um, the elasticity you're looking for. Good tips. Lightning round, four questions, two minutes. Mood therapist, pineapple on pizza, thoughts? Uh, it's fine. I wouldn't order it, but if it's what's available, I'll have it. Uh, and it's always better to use fresh pineapple than canned pineapple. Ooh, that's interesting. We, we don't have the time to get into it. Uh, from Frank Mosca, <laughs> uh, longtime pizza, home pizza maker and enjoying Modernist Pizza Podcast. Also, shout out to Jackie Molecules. Something I have been curious about for a long time. It seems like the Italians are the only culture who specifically talk about digestibility when describing their pizza. And I find it quite common. This triggers Nastasia as well. She hates this. Uh, uh -huh. As if a point of pride, selling point, or even a defining characteristic. I guess the point right. is that fermentation has an impact on how our bodies process. Oh, dude, I got 58 seconds. All right, what's the answer? Uh, the answer is that it's a little bit of BS, and there's really no way to measure digestibility because it's different for everybody. All right, and Quinn wants to know, on the way, I guess it's the last one we're going to get to, wants to, if you have any advice on the way out for people breaking into culinary consulting, especially when part of the value proposition is using modern and technical ingredients. He has a good ice cream book you should look at, by the way. 
Yes. Uh, it's called Frozen Desserts, and I'm the author of it. <laughs> nice, nice. No, but like, uh, no, but no, I was saying, <laughs> uh, no, but uh, how do you, uh, how do you get into the, uh, how do you get into this business? <laughs> of consulting? Yeah. Oh my God. I don't know. LinkedIn. I mean, you got to meet wow. people. You have to go out and unfortunately meet people. I don't know. There's, wow. many, there's many different approaches. That's a great answer. Thank you. Well, uh, <laughs> Francisco, thanks for coming on. Check out uh, the Modernist Pizza podcast, uh, edited by our own Jackie Molecules. Check out uh, Modernist Pizza, the book. Uh, how much does it cost nowadays, Francisco? Oh, I don't know. Depends on where you buy it. Uh, but anywhere between three fifty, four hundred. All right. Well, it's a, like it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. It's the only pizza phone. book you need. It, that's definitely. Right. It's the only three pizza books you need. Anyway, thanks so much for coming on. Sure. I appreciate it. Cooking issues. My pleasure. Thank you so much.